As you may know by now, Lonnie Guineer died January 7, 2022. She was a foremost law professor and voting rights defender and a prolific legal scholar and theorist. Some will remember that in April 1993, in his first term of office, President Bill Clinton nominated her to lead the Civil Rights Division of the DOJ. Guineer, who was of Black and Jewish heritage, was immediately condemned and maligned by conservative Republicans who vowed to work against Clinton and centrist Democrats. From the moment President Clinton announced her nomination, the goal was to crush it as quickly as possible. This was a traditional strategic political smear campaign made more efficient when a black woman is involved. They vastly distorted her legal positions and theories on such matters as affirmative action and voting rights, reducing the early nomination process to nothing more than public name calling. They labeled Guineer the quota queen, a reference to the ideological conflicts over affirmative action in an attempt to associate her with a racist fervor over mythical welfare queens. But in addition to her civil rights views overall, I believe it was actually her philosophies about shared political power, interpreted as empowering the black vote that was particularly unnerving. The president bowed to this pressure. His nomination would not go forward. Some will also remember a lot of political doublespeak at the time, a blame game as the whole debacle was even called a gaffe. But in the end, the president chose not to fight for his nominee. He said that he had not read her legal writings and when he did, he found he didn't agree with some of her opinions. This is Dr. Catherine Bancoli Medina with The Invention of Racism. The goal of this podcast series is to share the subtle and not so subtle nuances of racism from the past into the 21st century. Understanding and speaking the truth about racism is the first step toward combating and ultimately eliminating it. This podcast episode, Black Women, SCOTUS, and the Politics of Post-Truth Racism, looks at the preliminary racist reaction to a black woman nominee for the United States Supreme Court, and briefly the connection to the historical events surrounding the cases of Lonnie Guineer and Anita Hill. So here's the challenge. In 1993, the president, bowing to right-wing political pressure within a deeper movement of conservative neoliberalism, admitted publicly that he hadn't been properly briefed about Grenier's legal writing and that he didn't really know what her views were based on her work, but neither did any of her savage critics. Keep in mind, Grenier knew the Clintons from Yale Law School and has described their relationship as one of, as, as one of friends. Grenier's critics garnered considerable media attention without 
having to explain their own superficial understanding of her legal arguments. What made matters worse was that the president withdrew her nomination without a fight. She was denied a Senate hearing, the opportunity to, in her own words, explain and clarify her thinking to the American people, including her opponents. But despite the outcome, Guineer did go on to publicly expound upon her work in talks and in writing. In fact, to her surprise, she became famous. And much like law professor Anita Hill, who challenged the controversial SCOTUS nomination of Clarence Thomas with sexual harassment charges in 1991, Guineer too, in the face of public indignity and disrespect, went on to forge an even more distinguished career. Not long after the Clinton SCOTUS nomination affair, she published The Tyranny of the Majority, Fundamental Fairness in Representative Democracy, and then later, Lift Every Voice, turning a civil rights setback into a new vision of social justice. Three decades later, when President Biden announced that he would keep his campaign promise and nominate a black woman to the U.S. Supreme Court to replace Justin Stephen Breyer, I immediately thought of Lonnie Guineer. She was a brilliant legal mind, and there are many who believe that Guineer would have been an excellent nominee, not just for the Civil Rights Division, but to the United States Supreme Court. Over the past weeks, various speculative shortlists of potential black women candidates to SCOTUS have been circulated in the media. The unsubstantiated shortlist includes, but is not limited to, Ketanji Brown Jackson, who is a judge to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia, Leandra Kruger, a California Supreme Court Justice, J. Michelle Childs, a South Carolina U.S. District Court Judge, Wilhelmina Wright, a judge on Minnesota's Federal District Court, Eunice Lee, a circuit judge and former New York Public Defender, Candace Jackson Akiwumi, a circuit judge and formerly of the Chicago Public Defender's Office, Sherilyn Ifill, a civil rights attorney and past president and director counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund, and Leslie Abrams Gardner, a U.S. District Judge for the Middle District of Georgia. And this short list is still growing. The initial public debate over a black woman being added to the Supreme Court has been fierce. And so a lot of people are asking, what is it about this institution, a component of the judicial branch that is racially sacrosanct? Actually nothing. It's just how we choose our justices. Racists take to heart that the Supreme Court is the highest court in the land. It, quote, is the final judicial arbiter in the United States on matters of federal law, end quote. And since 1789, 115 people, almost exclusively white males, have served on the Supreme Court of the United States. And if the justice so chooses, their term is for life. 
There have been two black men on the Supreme Court, Justices Thurgood Marshall, and I mentioned currently Clarence Thomas. SCOTUS was a white male-only enclave until 1967 when Justice Marshall was confirmed. The five women justices on the Supreme Court include Sandra Day O'Connor, she was the first female justice in 1981, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who came on board in 1993, Sonia Sotomayor, the first Hispanic justice in 2009, Elena Kagan in 2010, and recently, Amy Coney Barrett, who was swiftly confirmed before the 2020 election by the previous administration. Of the 108 justice remaining, all have been white males. The SCOTUS does not and has never represented the diversity and demographics of the United States. So after 233 years of white male dominance on the U.S. Supreme Court, there is a question about black female representation as soon as the preliminary slate of names from the shortlist was circulated in the media, we were inundated with traditional and nonsensical racist tropes. The first condemnation questioned the overall fitness and qualifications of all of these black women. Far-right conservatives and others asked why Biden was not focusing on the most qualified candidate. That one false sentiment served as a racist dog whistle or bullhorn that black people through black women were attempting to unfairly gain access to spaces where whites on the other hand are presumed qualified. It supports the lies undergirded of course by the anti-affirmative action movement. So in the face of indisputable evidence regarding their overall credentials an ABC News poll reported that most Americans want Biden to consider a wider pool of candidates, meaning not just black women. Intended or not, this is a familiar racist position when there are calls for equity where race and the value of ancestry is a historic factor. Language, of course, is immediately weaponized and distorted to see identity politics, quotas, and tokenism rather than endorse some small measure of democratic equity. Consider that in the 233 year history of SCOTUS, not all of these justices had law degrees. They didn't have to have them, especially in the early days of the courts, nor did some of them attend law school at all or argue cases in the state courts and very few had or even needed federal trial experience. Now, legal analyst and scholar Anoa Shanga challenged the basis for that ABC News poll by outlining some of the history of nominee selection, noting that the SCOTUS nominee process is always narrow. Shanga wrote that, quote, over 100 white men have been nominated and confirmed without concern for considering all possible nominees." End quote. It is true 
that most of this is racist gamemanship designed to aggregate power. After all, we live in the post-truth era, right? Remember when Oxford English Dictionary named post-truth the 2016 word of the year? Well, the idea of post-truth has always existed. And in this moment, post-truth refers to the idea that opinions and feelings are more important than actual truth. In modern society, some people became aware of a post-truth world through the 2016 U.S. presidential election, where, admittedly, an unhinged candidate wielded white male privilege like a sword in order to distort the political landscape and to usher in chaos. Since then, post-truth discourse has included false or fake news claims, outlandish conspiracy theories, the fostering uh, of an acceptance of just lying, and a tolerance for willful ignorance. It signals a decline in certain cultural and social structures, the acceptance of mass delusion, and the denial of reality altogether all entrenched in a global epoch such as the coronavirus pandemic. And we could talk about the nature of post-truth ad infinitum, a little bit more on this later. But for now, consider that for racists, post-truth is a necessary tool to eliminate rational argument and evidence-based discussion. In the early 1990s, the conservatives made Grenier's academic writings a political issue. Right-wing politicians and pundits weaponized the art of lying. Her legal positions were distorted. They called her writings too provocative and anti-democratic. At the same time, they revealed, with a perverse sense of pride, that they really hadn't read or studied her work at all. However, they felt empowered, privileged, to reduce her complex legal arguments to inflammatory sound bites. They ignored the totality of her record and dismissed her character, competence, and commitment to intellectual excellence. But Professor Grenier knew her worth. She was a consummate instructor and she was never a victim. Silence was not an option. Though she was denied a confirmation hearing, Grenier would not withdraw her nomination. And I, like most of the young black women I knew in the early 1990s, notwithstanding our own queries and questions about some of her opinions, we regard, regarded Grenier as a shero because as a black woman, she would not allow her voice to be suppressed. And though she was tired and frustrated with the whole affair, she called it painful. She fought back in the broader name of justice. The issue was larger than her nomination. In 1993, this event was a civil rights and a race relation issue and impacted black women and people of color profoundly. Guineer was confident that a confirmation would have been certain had a hearing taken place, 
had her voice actually been heard. Now also recall that then Delaware Senator Joseph Biden, who chaired the Senate Judiciary Committee overseeing the sexual harassment charges made by Anita Hill, was chair when Guineer's nomination was announced and then scrapped. In 2017, Biden, who voted against Thomas's SCOTUS confirmation, said he owed Hill an apology for not doing enough to stop the Senate hearing attacks against her. And I don't want to go off on a whole nother discussion, but for those younger listening to this, you really had to be there. They were blasting the Thomas Hill hearings into the streets. We're talking stores and shops and any place where people gathered. It was a huge, huge affair. And as for Guineer, Biden is said to have echoed her attackers' exaggerated concerns about her writings, suggesting that her work could only be defended as academic musings. Writer, activist, and editor Paul Rosenberg gives an interesting and in-depth historical account of the Biden-Hill-Guineer connection in his 2015 article for The Salon. So, years later, black women legally voted as an overwhelmingly solid block at 91% to elect Joe Biden in the 2020 presidential election. So I say, however, as important as a black woman Supreme Court justice is, it will not shift the current conservative majority. And certainly, depending on the final selection, it could strengthen the conservative majority on the court, as in the case of Clarence Thomas, who replaced civil rights icon liberal and liberal Justice Thurgood Marshall. Thomas was nominated by Republican President George H.W. Bush in 1991, and Thomas has always demonstrated that he is a conservative, right-leaning justice. At the time, however, African-American organizations and institutions largely rejected his nomination. He was confirmed by a narrow vote of 52 to 48. So for many, in the interest of the black constituency, collectively, Thomas was no substitute for the iconic legacy of a Thurgood Marshall. And it is important to appoint a qualified black woman to the United States Supreme Court, but it will not benefit black people to appoint another conservative. Such an appointment will not, among other things, address the consolidation of white nationalism the economic decline of the black community, the systemic erosion of democracy, and the advancement of authoritarianism. So, in the end, it will come down to values, the content and composition of her character and principles. These values will be revealed through her larger story, her decisions, and the critical questions she asks, the battles she has fought, how she communicates her opinions on important issues, 
and whether she is willing to engage her opponents with integrity and courage. To be sure, the same neoconservative voices that are suggesting that focusing on a black female nominee is somehow reverse racism will be the first to wholeheartedly endorse a black woman nominee if she exhibits or signals a commitment to far-right credentials. Now, if she is truly decolonized, she won't have a chance. Regrettably, but with insight from black women's history in the United States, I think the whole confirmation process will continue to devolve into areas that should have no place in public discussions of governance. I expect that in addition to policing the nominee for her demonstrations of a liberal ideology, she will be compelled to exclude anything deemed politically radical or progressive. She will be monitored for anything that is perceived as giving any sign of aid and comfort to the black population. And I tell you here and now, there will be an attempt to deliberate over her comportment and or personal appearance vis-a-vis -vis clothing and even hair. You know, you really have to be a black woman to understand the, the nether regions of where this level of scrutiny can actually go. Like Lonnie Guineer and Anita Hill, this SCOTUS nominee will be subjected to salacious and inappropriate treatment. As we wrap up, in the 1990s, I remember that President Bill Clinton survived American politics. He got through Joe Biden's The Violent Crime Control Act and Law Enforcement Act of 1994, also known as the Crime Bill, which boosted mass incarceration, impacting the lives of black and brown people in incalculable ways. And political oracles said Clinton was a resilient politician made of Teflon, that he was the so-called comeback kid. The debacle involving Lonnie Guineer was quickly moved off the Clinton administration's table, and Guineer went on to be named the Bennett Boski Professor of Law at Harvard Law School, the first person, the first woman of color, to hold this tenured professorship. You know, truth is one of the most important concepts in organized human society. In ancient Kemet, Egypt, the goddess Maat represented truth, justice, order, righteousness, balance, and harmony. And when a person died, their heart was weighed against the feather of Maat. If your heart was light as a feather, you could enter the afterlife. The late scholar Miriam Maat Kare Manjes, an important voice in Africana sociology, reminded us that Maat was the unifying principle for preserving truth in the cosmos and in human society, an elemental ideal which produced law and maintained peace. This goddess Maat impacted the human and spiritual realms equally. Her objective was to keep chaos from gaining a foothold in the world. The kings of Kemet were responsible for upholding the sacred principles of Maat and judges 
justices of these ancient African courts were the divine priests of the goddess Maud. And I recommend one of my favorite books uh, on Maud by Professor Milana Karinga, Maud, The Moral Ideal in Ancient Egypt. So post-truth in any form, including the racist man manipulation of people in order to create and perpetuate lies of hierarchy is an immense erosion of human freedom and of course paves the way for the exploitation of human beings. It signals a decline in society when delusion and denial of reality are readily accepted and in the face of a global crisis, no less. But you know, facts are not subjective. Post-truth is disinformation. The denial of truth is a dangerous thing. There is no common ground surrounding a lie and no substitute for rational discourse. As for the black woman SCOTUS nominee, whoever she might be, the political process will have her life, rulings, and opinions closely examined. Black people, in the spirit of Mott, will also be weighing her heart. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Support for independent podcasts like The Invention of Racism is critical at this moment in the national and global effort to dismantle racism and to establish human equality. We need as many thoughtful and courageous voices as possible. If you believe in and appreciate this anti-racism podcast, continue to download, like, and share and support. I also encourage you to use your platform to honestly analyze, examine, and help put an end to racism. And if you are listening to this podcast series right now, then you know discourse on racism is not for the faint of heart. I hope that you will continue to join me as I present key topics in the invention of racism. <laughs>